Welcome to Rallon's Rant. Today I'm joined by former UFC champion and UFC Hall of Famer Ken Shamrock. Ken has also fought in the WWF for several years during the 90s, picking up multiple titles during his stint with the company. More recently, Ken has started his own podcast named World's Most Dangerous Podcast, and this can be found at www.dangerouspodcast.com. Now to start off the podcast today, I'd just like to ask, how's things with you today, Ken? Oh, it's good. Uh, enjoying life and uh, taking it one day at a time, but uh, really um, uh, enjoying myself now. Good. Well, that's good to hear. And to kickstart proceedings, uh, I want to start at the beginning. When you were a young kid growing up, you know, describe your childhood and, you know, some of the events that stand out for you when you think back on it. Wow. Uh, yeah, I've lived uh, a couple different lives. Uh, when I was first born, I was born in Macon, Georgia. Um, grew up really with nobody, uh, no parents watching us, me and my two older brothers. Um, we were kind of raised ourselves, and uh, we were a group in a rough neighborhood. We were fighting all the time. Um, didn't have a whole lot of food. Uh, didn't have any toys to play with. And we, we grew up real rough, in the, and it was in the ghetto. Uh, a lot of fights and stuff, trying to survive and this and that. And, and that was probably till I was about, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old. Um, then moved to Napa, California. Um, started school there. Um, ended up um, uh, getting stabbed, did some strong arm robbery. Got in trouble with the law um, at 10 years old. I was in juvenile wow. hall. Um, became a ward of the court, uh, which means they became my parents. Uh, they put me in placements, I failed a bunch of placements. Um, ended up at we call the Shamrock Boys Home. Um, that's where I was adopted by the parents, my parents who raised me, um, Bob and uh, Dee Dee. <clears throat> and uh, that's really where my life, I really started to have a childhood and really started to have some uh, clarity on what life's about. So the Shamrock Boys Home, where it was a group home for kids, is really where I had an opportunity to turn my life around. Okay. And was there any kind of kind of learnings from it? As you said, you know, you only kind of started your your childhood life, the normal life, the age of 13, 14. But for all, you know, as you're saying, when you were getting into the fights, when you had that, say, stab, uh, when you, you were stabbed in that robbery, did that later on in life stand to you a bit? Did it give you a sort of kind of independence at an early age? Or did you look back on it with more of a negative view as opposed to kind of gain something from this tough upbringing? No, I, I, I think um, if you're successful, uh, if you go through a rough upbringing, uh, if you're going to be successful in your later in your life, you're going to have to accept um, of those things that have happened to you. Um, and you have to learn from those experiences. And if you do that, then I believe that you become much more, um, uh, you're much more likely to succeed and become, become successful if you're able to overcome those adversities. I think adversity uh, is what makes people um, what they are. 
because yeah. um, that really does show you who you become. Because if you don't go through any adversities or any problems at all, which doesn't likely happen, but if you don't, then what kind of person are you? How do you know what kind of person you are? So mm. I think with the people that have gone through adversities and fought through those adversities and become um, better people through those adversities really tells you what kind of character they are. Yeah, no, I agree. And pushing on through your teenage years, um, did you go back to school and go to college? Or, you know, how did how did the later years of your kind of childhood pan out? Yeah, the later years, you know, like I said, I was in and out of juvenile hall all the time. I hadn't really been in school. So I missed all of my grade school. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't have an education per se. So when I went into high school, when I was at the boys' in my boys' home, I was uh, 13 years old. I might have started out my freshman year, and I couldn't... I couldn't do first grade math. I mean, I couldn't even do add and subtract because I, I couldn't carry numbers over. I didn't understand how to do all that because I really didn't have an education. Yeah. So I went to special ed my first two years of high school trying to catch up uh, to where everybody else was at. And the reason why uh, I wanted to do that, not because I wanted to go to school, was because um, I, I found something that I really enjoyed and I was very successful at and it made me become important to other people and that was sports uh because i was good at sports people did things for me i mean they 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 did they went out beyond what they did for other kids um so that i would make my grade so i could play football because i had to have a certain grade point average to play football and uh so um people went out of their way to make sure that i had those grades so that i could play on saturday so for me uh, i found something that um made people uh, like me, respect me, who I was. And so that was something I think that drove me uh, even into sports later on was I felt like, wow, you know what? If they could do this in high school, imagine when I get into, into pros, man, what they do for me. So yeah. um, I really started looking in that direction because it made me feel uh, powerful. It made me feel wanted okay well you're saying there as in like you kind of you identified path you identified a reason for you to you know hopefully do good with your life and you were saying that in college and stuff and school like that you were mainly based around football you know did you continue that on into college or did you go straight into you know wrestling and mixed martial arts Uh, i played college ball yeah uh played at shasta college i played there i played some semi-pro football and um, same thing, you know, I mean, uh, uh, people got went out of their way to make sure they had tutors and things to help me so that I could play football on Saturday. And uh, and so I took advantage of that, you know, not advantage in a bad way, but advantage in a good way. I mean, yeah. um, I went out and I actually um, got an education, you know, I mean, I was like, wow, if these people are going to do this for me, then I'm going to I'm going to take advantage of that. You know, like I'm going to I'm going to use it. And so I got an education and. I uh, went on and played college ball. I was an All-American in college ball. Um, defensive captain. Uh, and so I, I did a lot with sports. It, it helped me uh, become what I wanted to be in life, and that was successful. Uh, I had an opportunity to do other things later on, obviously, uh, in pro wrestling and, and uh, in fighting. Uh, I started taking a different direction. And uh, be- because of what I what I learned young, younger was when I was like, if I, if I would do what I was supposed to do and then go out there and train hard, work hard, 
then I could achieve the goals that I want to achieve and I could become important in this world. Okay. So what you're kind of saying there is that as long as it was, a, it was kind of a sports orientated thing that you knew you could control the amount of effort you put into it, you felt that could, you could take on the world in a sense. Yeah, I felt like that, that, that now I could become successful. You know, I mean, you watch all the time these people running around and they're driving to cars and having houses and, you know, they're successful. And I knew that I couldn't do that. Like, I, I wasn't going to wear a suit. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't, it wasn't in my DNA, right? Yeah. But exactly. this I could do. Like, sports is something that I could control and that I can be successful in that era uh, rather than the other one because the other one I would I'll be, be beating my head against the wall and never get it. But sports I got very easily. And so I started attacking and going in that direction so that I could have the things I want in life. Okay. And, you know, your first kind of major impact on a, on a sport per se was martial arts and you know how did how did you get into that you know what was the point where you were like you know what I want to be a mixed martial artist I want to go on and obviously end up fighting in the UFC well I I, I was doing pro wrestling in, in Mooresville and uh, Dean Malenko showed me this tape that Sammy Saranaka who was the promoter for the US uh, had given him when he came up to to the Mooresville because he, he was from Florida and he was down there wrestling on the circuit that we were in and I met with him he stayed with me we drove together and he showed me this tape and I was like dude what is that because I saw these two guys and they were punching mm. and kicking and grappling and doing all these things that I'd never seen in one fight before yeah. other than a street fight and <laughs> I was like dude what is that and they were, he says, "Oh, it's this, you know, UWF over in Japan." I said, like, "Man, I want to do that." And he looked at me and he goes, "Man, that's real." He goes, "That's they're not playing." I said, "Dude, I want to do that." He thought I was crazy. Well, I went up to Florida and I tried out with Sammy Saranaka at his at Dean's dad's gym, where Sammy was, you know, looking for new talent. And I tried out there and I thumped everybody there. And uh, so Sammy said, "Hey, you know, uh, maybe you come to Japan and work out a little bit." So I went to Japan. I trained up there. They put me through this tryout for about two hour tryout. Went through four different guys and even fought the two guys I saw on tape. And they beat yeah. the hell out of me. I mean, just literally <laughs> beat the hell out of me. And, and I had never been handled like that before. Yeah. So as soon as that happened, it was like, dude, I have got to learn that. And so that's the first thing I did when I went in. I started training and doing that. Sammy said, okay, uh, I'll call you. So I go back home thinking like I didn't do well, you know, because yeah. I got beat up for the first hour I did fine. But after those other two guys got in there, they just thumped me and I was like, oh man, they're not going to use me. Yeah. Well, he calls back a couple of days later and says, hey, how's it like to come up to Japan and, and, uh, and train? I said, yeah, absolutely. So I go up to Japan and they just literally beat me up, dude. I mean, they beat me up and, and uh, I went back and I just didn't think for a second that they were going to use me after that he called and said hey in three months we have a show uh would you want to be on it and i was like me <laughs> I was like, yeah. yeah yeah he goes yeah you come to japan train for a little bit and we'll put you on we'll put you on the undercard and you can uh and we'll have you on the first show and i was like absolutely and was this so, was this ufc one at the time or was it a different no, show? this was japan this is japan, japan yeah yeah, this is back before UFC, man. This is back in, uh, it had to be 89, 90. <clears throat> and uh, so I did my first first event. 
And I remembered uh, it was in Naka, Naka something, Japan. It was about 17,000 people. And, really? Uh, that that big first, at that time? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It was huge, man. 17,000 people. My very first fight was no, that was number four on the card. And it was in front of 17,000 people. And That's after, incredible. and I won my first fight, right? I mean, <laughs> I literally just mauled this guy. And uh, I beat him. And uh, people started chanting my name. Of course, I didn't know it. Sammy came over and bumped me and said, hey, they're chanting your name. And I was like, oh, because I couldn't tell, you know. They were calling me yeah. Wayne Shamrock instead of Ken Shamrock. <laughs> And uh, so they would chant my name after my first fight. And uh, after that, man, I never looked back, man. I was like, yeah. this, is, this is awesome. And um, how important do you think having to, because you were saying there the first time when you went into that trial when they took you out initially, you know, the first one or two times you were fine, but then you started getting beat up and beat up. But how important do you think it was for the fact that you were just so eager to learn that you've kind of viewed these kind of hastings are you getting beat up as learning experiences how important do you think that well, was well it was important because this is what they were looking for i know it at the time but you know here i was and went in for the first two guys that were young boys right and i yeah. pretty much mauled them threw them around and then of course the other two guys Sam suzuki and fanaki came in and they beat me up right but i kept getting up kept going and even they had to sammy had to say no that's enough because sammy said okay that's enough and i was like no no i can go more because I felt like I didn't show enough, right? And he's like, yeah. hey, go more, go more. And he's like, no, 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 it's fine. Uh, that's enough. So I think that the eagerness and the, 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 the toughness that I showed and the never give up that I showed, that, that Sammy saw something there and said, you know what, we can, see, we can train this guy. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And do you think then moving just fast forward in a bit to, you know, UFC 1, where that tournament took place. Did you go into that thinking, you know, I'm prepared, I'm, I'm good enough to beat everyone here, or were you just still kind of thinking, listen, I'm, I'm new to this, I, I, could, I could get pasted or else I could kill someone at any moment? Well, when I, when I went into that first UFC fight, I was over cocky. I mean, I, I really believed that there was no one that could touch me. And um, so going into that fight, I was like, okay, you know, I'm just going to these thump these strikers, take them down and beat them up. And this guy wearing a pajamas, which was Hoist Gracie with his gi walking around. Yeah, he was like, man, he could be able to even touch me. I'm way too strong for him. Mm. And, um, and plus, I know all the submissions, too. So uh, that was the one thing that I went in that I wished. I yeah, when I get hindsight 50-50. You get to be champion. Mm having success and you're walking into an arena that people don't understand but you do and uh so all that together you know i i was definitely caught off guard but i think the the one thing that um that probably made me the angriest was even though i was cocky and i felt like there's no way that anybody could stop me yeah uh was when they took my shoes away right what I didn't have, I didn't have enough understanding because I was too busy thinking about how good I was and no matter what they did, they couldn't beat me. Of really understanding of how important it was to have those shoes considering I'd never been in the ring without them. 
But I just kind of like, whatever, take my shoes away. You guys put all these things in the way. I'm still going to beat you. That was the, what I felt. It was like, there's nothing you're going to do that's going to stop me from winning this. And that was what, what I kicked myself in the tail for because I should have said, no way. This is supposed to be anything goes, no rules, no time limit. You're not taking my shoes away. And if that happens, then we're looking at a different result. Yeah, well... Especially at that time, you know, everyone who, especially the listeners listen to this, they probably don't realize that back then, the UFC, it, it wasn't the, the big, huge company that it is now. It was it was a case of, you know, people had to battle behind the scenes to get it legalized or get certain things allowed for the night ahead on the day of the fight. And all these complications would be coming in and out every day. And I'm sure there was times early on there that you probably thought, are you going to fight? And I think when you actually became champ at UFC 5, I think, or it could be in UFC 3 a bit earlier, that you know the UFC and all its lawyers were battling to get the go-ahead for the show. Yeah, there was, like I said, a couple different times. And, and uh, there was also another one where <clears throat> they had taken away punches. And if yeah. anybody punched, um, that you know, they were going to arrest you. Well, I had a group home for kids at the time where I was teaching young kids like myself uh, who had been going through group homes and things that I was taught through sports and everything about how you could do whatever you want to do as long as you stay within the rules. You could be successful. you yeah. got to stay within the rules. And this is something that I preach to these kids because that's how I was taught. It was like, hey, man, you could be aggressive in football in wrestling, all these things you're doing, you've got to stay within the rules. And you, if you succeed, you can have anything you want in the world. I mean, sky's the limit. And so I was preaching that, and then they basically took away the punches uh, with the with the Severn fight. And it was like, yeah. you know, I was like, okay, well, how's that going to happen? I mean, I mean, I've got to beat this guy down in order to win. And uh, so they took those away, and so I chose. Uh, that I wasn't going to punch in that fight. And, and, uh, that was one of those fights where if you look at it, it was probably the worst fight in UFC history. Mm. <laughs> Dan never shot on me. He never came after me. And of course I wasn't going to punch him. Yeah. He didn't know that at the time, but I wasn't going to punch him. I was going to wait for him to shoot on me and grapple with him. And he never shot. He just danced around the outside of the ring. And that was one of the most boring fights in history. But if you know this, what was going on behind the scenes was is that they actually banned punching. And uh, so uh, that was one of those. And during that time, it was almost like we even one time uh, loaded up on a plane and went to Dothan, Alabama, because they actually had uh, the night, the day before, they said that they could not have the event there. For whatever Jesus. reason, they, they agreed to it. They set the ring up. Everything was going to go forward. And then... 24, 48 hours before the event's supposed to go on, the, the state comes in and says, no, you guys can't have it here. So they had to load up the ring, put everything in a plane, load all that up, fly it to Dothan, Alabama. All the fighters and participants had to fly on another plane, get there next morning, set the ring up, and have the fight the next night. Wow. Giving away free nice. tickets. <laughs> well, probably rightfully so. <laughs> right. <laughs> And um, to kind of sum up just the last kind of question on this period of the UFC with yourself, winning and becoming champ at uh, UFC 5, how 
how big of a moment was that for you in relation to where you came from I'm sure probably you thought about your childhood all that went before you you know was that just a, a massively proud moment for you that you know you felt that everything that had gone before you had been worth it yeah I, uh, I'll tell you uh, being a champion um, especially in the UFC and then of course being the champion in Pancrase the first champion in Pancrase uh and then being the first champion really uh, in the UFC when it comes to single fights, you know, with the the weight classes and all being a a heavyweight champion. Those are exciting. I mean, that you've done something that, uh, that not too many people can do. I mean, you, you're, you're the best in the world in two different countries, but I've got to tell you, um, those were exciting. But I got to tell you, being inducted into the Hall of Fame is is like because now being inducted into the Hall of Fame, I don't have to think about my next fight being a champion, and it was all worth it. Like, yeah, yeah I'm a champion. But but you don't get to enjoy it if you're a true champion. You're thinking about the next fight. Like, who am I fighting next? How do I defend my title? So you don't really yeah. get to let it sink in and enjoy it. You're on to the next fight. Like that's just metal. I got it. I achieved something. Who's the next one? Yeah. So you're always constantly looking for the next battle. But being inducted into the Hall of Fame is that time where you get to soak it all in and really, really look at your accomplishments and what you've done. And when I was inducted into the Hall of Fame, that was a moment where I realized that I had done something special. Yeah. Because weren't you, um, you, were one, you were like the first guy to actually get inducted into it. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, we'll probably touch on a bit of that later about the Hall of Fame and, you know, what the legacy has come with it. But before we get on to that, you just become champ. You know, a few years later, you find yourself losing the belt to Dan Severn. And then a few months later, you find yourself going to the WWF. Um, I'm just wondering why, why did you go to the WWF and not stay in the UFC? Well, I think when they were having problems like you were talking about when you go to a, a state and they were fighting to get the, the the fight to get put on every night or every day. There was always something coming up and they had to go to court to make sure they could continue to have the fight. And it just wore on Bob Meyerwitz. It just one thing after another. Yeah. And uh, so my contract came up and uh, Bob called me and told me he wasn't going to be able to pay me what what I needed for my contract, which we had already agreed upon. And I said, Bob, I said, you know, utmost respect. Uh, but I just, I have, I have four kids. I got a family. I got to be able to pay my bills. I said, I got a gym. I got fighters. I said, um, man, I have a, a large overhead. I've got to be able to make the money I need to make in order for me to continue to keep doing what I'm doing. And if you can't pay me that money, then I have to go do something else. And I hope that you would understand that. And Bob says, no, man, I, I do. I, I really do. And hopefully in the next year or two years, things will start looking better and, and you know, we can get you back. And I said, no worries. Appreciate it. Good luck. And so that's when I started um, looking for other opportunities. I looked at New Japan, Old Japan, WCW, WWF. And WWF, Vince McMahon was the one that came after me the hardest. I mean, like, he wanted the deal closed. I mean, when he when I made the call to him, um, it wasn't a week later I was up in, in uh, 
up in uh, the office uh, in Connecticut. Uh, I believe it was Connecticut, uh, where he brought me in, sat down, talked with me, tried to work a deal out. And next, I think two nights later, I was on WW or on the Monday Night Raw, um, having this this angle with Farouk. So it was it happened fast. So. Vince really had an idea of what he wanted to do, and and, uh, and and I was a part of that idea. So, and it just, from what I can see and everything that I've, I've watched up to this point, man, he made a genius move. Yeah. Well, you, you kind of came from the, you kind of, when you entered the WWF scene, you kind of, they took what had happened with you previously in the kind of UFC world, and they kind of seemed to bring that into the WWF world as in you were this dangerous man who could submit anyone you, you could overpower anyone and they kind of they kind of drove that for a long long period it's in like even when you lost games you lost matches you never lost them clean there were always you know a disqualification right. or interference and you could see you could see that was that your idea or was that vince's idea to kind of push you as this kind of dominant you know unstoppable force when you kind of came on the scene yeah, that was Vince's idea. Um, he came up with the angle. He came up with all the the I Quit match with Bret Hart and Stone Cold with yeah. me being the referee and just all these things that really tried to help take uh, his his company in a different direction. Like in the like the attitude, he wanted that attitude to come out on screen. He wanted us push the envelope so that we were different than anybody else. Mm. And you're probably one of your most famous kind of stints or memories anyone has of Ken Shamrock in the WWF would have to be, you know, your feud against The Rock, or as other people might know him in cinemas, is Dwayne Johnson. But um, they put you as, you know, Intercontinental Champion, which is a big enough belt at the time. And, you know, what was it like to feud against someone like The Rock, who I'm sure was, he was one of the top, top bookers at that stage? Yeah, I tell you, it was fun because uh, he was very professional. Um, it was fun working with a guy like that where I could trust whatever happened in the ring. He had great uh, great mic skills. Uh, he was a great athlete. Uh, so going in the ring and being able to put matches on with him uh, was a tremendous, tremendous time because I, I could do all the things I needed to do because I knew he was able to do them with me. So we had these this angle and the things that we did there were just and I was I wanted it to be stiff like I didn't yeah. want to have to sell something that didn't land and so for for him and myself the matches worked out great because I I made sure that he understood that you know uh, I'm not going to sell something that it, that doesn't that doesn't that I don't feel I need you to be able to lay stuff in there. We're like with the chair shot, hit me in the face. So he throws yeah. the chair and hits me in the face. So all these things are the things that I wanted. Right? I I'm, I called those. I wanted those to happen because to me, I wanted people to understand that Ken Shamrock is the world's most dangerous man and not just in one way, but not only is he a tough guy, but he's also a guy that feels no pain. And you kind of touched on it there in relation to if – most wrestling fans will remember that chair shot you took to The Rock, which was full on. You know, how, yes. how, planned, how planned were these matches? You know, so say when you're going out to fight The Rock for a title, do you go over a script? Do you react it before the actual show? Would you just have a small discussion beforehand and then, you know, just let your wrestling and your acting do the talking in the ring? Yeah, basically we just go in and we just go at it. You know, we call some spots in there but basically we just kind of go at it 
especially during that attitude there yeah um it was it was anything goes in relation to comparing it today but um oh yeah yeah today's soft today's soft (laughs) no it is and big was a big factor of what you did in the ring kind of based off the kind of crowd's emotion or how they reacted to a certain you know a certain move in the game in the match i should say or else if one of the one of the fighters was seen the the bad guy was it encouraged that the bad guy would kind of rile up the crowd by you know do maybe cheap cheap shots to the more popular one no 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 not with me and the rock man we basically just we were ourselves we went out okay. and did things and and uh and we had matches and stuff but we weren't we were neither one of us were playing off to be a good guy or a bad guy we just did what we did however the crowd took us is the way they took us hmm okay and i suppose with that with the crowd and you know the fact that you were fighting the rock and you know you were nearly you were like top of the game kind of top level wrestler was there any moment in time where you thought am i gonna have to get onto vince here and kind of get in his ear and say i I want to be a top guy because a lot of people suggest that you know you should have been a wwf champ but that never materialized did you think there was a time be after your feud with the rock that you were going to get pushed up the ladder rather than kind of stay more or less in the same position well i i had always thought that the the idea was to put the strap on me um mm. because of of where i came from from that that no holds barred era uh because that would um uh really push wwf and wwe into legitimacy you know, having a guy like myself carry the strap, especially during that era, you know, where MMA and the Bard was just really kicking off. Yeah. The whole idea for me to carry the strap was, was something I had always thought that they had planned on doing. And uh, and for whatever reason, uh, it just didn't happen. Okay. And, and did that affect, you know, I, 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 the reason I ask is I have no idea what kind of, kind of wrestler dynamic of the relationship with Vince is like but you know would you be regularly talking to Vince or would he be talking to you about what he what he saw you doing or how he viewed your character being pushed or you know was very much he would talk he would talk to the top guys the guys who were no popular. no never never no never I never got into that uh, with Vince you know it was we we go to work just like it was business, and they would hand us our our scripts and the stuff that uh, what how the show was going to go, what time we went on, um, and so we would understand when when the, the show lights would go on, what time we walk out, time we need to be in the gorilla station, um, all the the necessity things we need to know about TV or the house show, depending on whatever it is we were doing. So, but we never a discussion with Vince, you know, about any of that stuff. That's these things were already planned out six months in advance so there was already storylines going on for quite some time so we all had an understanding about what it is we were doing way in advance okay and i suppose the last thing i want to kind of ask about you know the wwf is what was the dynamics like backstage say with the wrestlers because it's almost like a a traveling circus there's so many people there's so many bits and bobs there's so many personalities traveling to and from different cities every day was there ever a time where you know there was individuals who kind of fell out with each other or were getting fights did you ever get in fights or was it quite a diplomatic and calm place to be when there's so many it was, as I said, it, it was, no no it's business you know it's 
it's no different than any other professional sport. You know, when you go into your locker room, you go in there, you got a job to do, and you go in and you get ready for your job, and you go in and you get your job done. And that's literally what it is, is day in and day out, you got a job to do. And it's no different than a football player having to go to practice all the time and then go have his game on Sunday or Monday, depending on when he's playing. It's it's a job. It's it's not that college style anymore, the high school thing anymore, where it's fun and it's entertaining. Now it's a business. It's your job. And yes, it is fun and it is entertaining. We do enjoy it. But nevertheless, we have a job to do. So therefore, we have to be professional. We have to be there punctually. And we've got to be ready to go out and do what it is we're asked to do. Okay. And... I'd say just to finish off on the WWF topic is, so saying you're traveling around city to city and, you know, I've read a few uh, books in my, in my time about, you know, the WWF and even UFC and stuff like that. But I remember reading, it was Brock Lesnar's um, book. And when he was talking about the WWF and when he had his first stint there, he was saying it was very tough being on the road for such a long time away from your family and away from say the people you loved and you know stages where you were ever thinking is this the right job for me i'm i'm missing home um, i'm getting bumps and bruises every night or as you said were you just you know, like this is business this is my job this is what i have to do what was your outlook on it yeah basically it was it was a job um and every time you went to you had to be there punctually, you know what time you had to be in the building and you know what you had to do that night. And, you know, so like I said, every night you could have a different opponent or the same opponent, but you wanted to do better than you did last night. So you try to come up with better, 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 better angles, better storylines, maybe even better moves. So all these things in your head to try to improve your business and, and your job. And so I always wanted to be the best. And so I was always looking for ways for my match to be the best. And so when I would go to a building, that's, that's what I do. I make sure that I'm on time, make sure that I planned everything out. I made sure that um, I, I, I tried to do better than I did the night before with whoever I was with. So it was fun and I enjoyed it, but at the same time, it was business and I need to make sure that I do the best at that. I wanted to be the best at it. So it was never a time uh, that I got to a point where I didn't like it. There was a time that I got to when I felt like, um, I was, I, I wasn't, it's like, I didn't feel like I wanted to be there anymore. It's because I was like missing my kids' graduations and I'm missing my kids' football games and their birthdays. And it seemed like every time, and I had four kids, I yeah, was missing, almost been tough. Their, I was missing them growing up. And so I would get homesick. It wasn't like I didn't want to be there. and I didn't love what I was doing because I did, but it was like torn between two things that I enjoyed doing. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that was tough, missing my family, missing the things, uh, my kids growing up, missing birthdays and all the things of that nature. So uh, it was a tough go there. And so I had to make a decision on what, what was, uh, what I was going to do. And, uh, so I had to make that decision. And unfortunately, um, there was a lot of other things that happened in the locker room during that time um, that helped me make those decisions. Mm, okay. And uh, as you're saying on, on these decisions, you know, you eventually go on to leave the WWF and, you know, like wh why did that come about? We, did you just, you know, you felt the time was right to go back and do mixed martial arts or was there an outside factor? And, you know, even with that decision, was there any regrets at the time of leaving the WWF? 
well, there was a lot of stuff going on there. There was a lot of different stuff happening. Uh, and so I, I think with all of that, with what, with what I had to think about and things that I knew, uh, and the decision that I had to make, it was really one where I thought like I had to make the best decision for me as a person, as a father, um, what was my, what was the best decision for me at that time? And so I felt really at that moment, the best thing for me was to, um, to just step away from pro wrestling, um, and, and get back to my family and, and, uh, and, and to get back to my, my life to figure out what it is that I, that I, I needed to do to, to be successful, uh, for my family and for my future. Okay. So then, so then that puts you, if I'm not you know, mistaken, you know, a few months, maybe a year goes by and then you find yourself back in the UFC with a feud with Tito Ortiz, correct? Right. So, you know, talk me through that because it's not probably the last time I'll say this on the podcast, but, you know, today's viewers, they're all thinking, you know, then the McGregor era, but, you know, you and Tito, your fights pretty much lay down the you know legacy it was the first real trilogy of fights that kind of it just opened the floodgates for fans exposure and that you know i think it was really the first time that you could see the media element of it where that you know tito wanted to get under your skin and you know you wanted to get under his skin so you know talk me through maybe leading up to that first fight with tito you know how did you mentally prepare for it and, you know, what would the difference between the UFC maybe, you know, from your previous stint to what it was like then? Yeah, I tell you, it was uh, it was a good time because that's when it really went mainstream, you know, where people mm. started turning their heads mainstream. You were hearing it on Best Damn Sports Show and you started to hear it on ESPN. And so you really starting to hear a little bit of the mainstream getting involved. And uh, so and and they were dying before that, you know, I mean, it was literally they were just they couldn't they couldn't. They couldn't do anything, and yeah. so when I came back, I basically told them, "I'll I'll blow it back up for you." And so when I came back, that was my intention was to figure out uh, how to get the media involved, how to make it exciting, how to get people to turn their heads and look over here. And so I created a lot of different opportunities with the feud with me and Tito, different things that I did to try to get that press to turn their heads and look at the noise being made over here. And so by doing that, it really created an option, an opportunity um, for the USC to get known, for people to start saying, why is all these people talking about this thing? What happened? Um, and so I would always be in Tito's face. I would always uh, get into a scrap with them or whatever it took to get people to notice. And, um, and you look back on it now, and, you, and, and I think that uh, so many people uh, underrate uh, what we did at that moment because it was really dying. There was no money being brought in. They were getting ready to close the doors. And I came in and said, I can do it. And I did it. And there's no recognition and no credit given to that. Yeah. Well, like, I, I think it nearly could have been, it was nearly, it was before its time because as you were saying, the UFC was, it was declining. Viewers were not paying any more attention to it. And then suddenly, out of the blue nearly got these two naturals of promoting fights going head to head and obviously your former champ tito is you know a championship style fighter and well I you gotta look think, at it like that look at it look at it like this was tito was already there 
Yeah. Ito had fights with all kinds of different people trying to get the ratings up. And they yeah. couldn't do over 30,000 buys with Tito as the champion. I mean, Tito was the champion. He was still fighting. And they yeah. brought in all kinds of opponents for him so that they could get ratings up. They couldn't get over 30,000 buys. When I came back in, I told them, I said, I can build it up. I said, I can get the numbers that you need. In fact, is I did it. I was so, so, uh, so positive that I even bet my pay on that, that I would get paid off of what I brought in. I was so confident I could do that. And so you tell me, um, I, through my whole career, from the time I first stepped into that ring to the last time I stepped in that ring, I have always broken records and I've fought mm -hmm. different people all along the way. So you tell me who the guy is that really can market and bring numbers in. Uh, I proved it every single time I stepped in the ring. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree or uh argue against that but I'd, I'd say with that you you come back you promote the fight you get big numbers with tito but obviously you know the end result was tito getting the victory over you H how did you deal with such a big loss because as you said you know the ufc was mainstream now you're you were seeing probably hearing your voice on the radio seeing yourself on tv by putting yourself out there verbally and getting involved in the mental aspect of the fight did that make losing to a guy say like tito uh that much more kind of difficult losing sucks no matter what i yeah. mean I, I hate to lose no matter what yeah but <laughs> you know i mean for me it was it was about it was about putting the ufc back on track and when i got when i took that fight with tito i knew i was that it was going to be tough because I was 40-something years old, and uh, Tito was 24, 25, in his prime, yeah. and he was very good. And so for me to go in and take on that fight, I knew I had an uphill battle. I knew it was going to be tough. And so going into that fight, there was no, I had no, um, I wasn't blind, and I wasn't stupid. I knew the chances of me winning weren't going to be very good. But I still put it out there. I still went out there and I did what I could. Um, and it wasn't like I took the fight because that's the fight I picked. I took the fight because that's the fight that they asked me to do because they were dying and they needed yeah. the numbers to be brought up. So I told Dana White I would do it and I would bring those numbers up, knowing that the fight wasn't a good fight for me. Well, it's a, it's a brave thing and a noble thing to do at the end of the day. And as I said just briefly earlier that fought him three times and one of the times you fought him later on you know you did the whole ultimate fighter television series and that kind of gave you know you and him more of a platform to verbally go at it while also putting your coaching skills to the test but you know what was it like because it, it was a relatively new show back then what was it like to go up against tito on the ultimate fighter tv series with eventually getting into the octagon again with him well, for me, like I said, the, the bottom line was about putting the UFC back on track. It was about getting them out there and keep that, that because that's my legacy. That's, that's, that's my DNA. If that dies off, then there's no history, right? So for me, it was important that it lived and that it stayed, but it stayed relevant. So I did everything I could to make sure that happened, including doing the reality show, which is not something they offered it to me the first time I turned it down. Because I just felt like it's just not a platform that I'm I would be good at coaching, because I I do I, my coaching is much different. 
Um, it's much more harsh, and it's a longer period of time before you get to step into the ring uh, with with the way that I train guys. You know, I had a fighter's house. You had to be in the fighter's house. You had to live there for six months to a year before you got in the ring and fought um, because it was important to me that when you went in there, you represented a, a brand, which was the Lion's Den. And that you went in there when you fought, you had to you had to represent very very strong, and that's why that brand early on was so powerful because there wasn't I just didn't let people go in and fight. So when I did the the ultimate the reality show, it was a completely different format for me. I had to train guys that didn't really want to do the training I wanted them to do. They didn't really want to have to go through the process of what I wanted them to do. And so it was almost like wearing kid gloves with these guys saying, oh, okay. And I did. I basically just let them do what they wanted to do because I felt like if anybody really wanted something, um, for, especially from me who had all the knowledge, I'm not going to force it down their throats if they don't want it. Um, the guys yeah. that came and trained with me, they went through a tryout and they gave it all in order to, to be there and work out with me. And those guys all became world champions sooner or later. On a reality show, it was like, uh, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to give these guys something um, that they hadn't earned or that they, they didn't want to earn. And I felt like on the reality show, if these guys didn't want to work out hard enough to get ready for fights, then I wouldn't push them. Yeah, well, that's that's actually a fair enough point to make. And I suppose just to pop back to the whole promotional side of it you know the media side of it i suppose it seems since i'm from ireland myself what what are your thoughts on you know conor mcgregor because when people think of the ufc now or you know they think of fighting now even in boxing conor mcgregor's the the big name and you know what you just think of his impact on the sports and probably more interest i'd be more interested on say his legacy in the ufc because he hasn't fought a huge amount of fights but having said that some people would argue He's done more than anyone has for the sport. But I'm just curious to get what your opinion would be on him at the moment. Yeah, I think what he's done has been awesome. I mean, uh, he's done. He's he, what he has done for the sport at this point in time has kept it alive. He's made it relevant. And uh, and I, I love what he did, man. I love the crossover. I love the, the, the way that he's really even now starting to really educate uh, people on that they, they need to start controlling their own business. Um, and they're, they're their name. Don't let these people take your name and not pay you for it. Um, and so he's raising a lot of awareness to that. And along with Mayweather, who did it in boxing already, who's developed his own organization. And uh, I've said this many, many times before. If those two would get together and develop their own organization, whether it be boxing or MMA, uh, and put on their own shows, they would corner the market right now. Because I believe that they would do what's the best for the fighters as far as pay. Mm. And I, I and probably you just brought it up there in relation to pay. Currently, the UFC's under a lot of scrutiny from the media. Even I remember reading uh, quotes from yourself about you know the lack of pay, the Reebok sponsorship that's recently come in. Do you think it's a huge, huge problem with the UFC right now from their pay structure point of view? Because everyone looks at all the big 
paydays that McGregor gets or even someone like a Brock Lesnar comes back and makes eight, eight to ten million but you know you've got about 70 to 80 percent of the fighters who are making 50,000 maybe 100,000 per fight but the thing is they have to pay they have to pay for their camp they have to pay for their food they have to pay for travel and other expenses so they don't end up making a huge amount of money for the amount of time they invest into it so just what like what are your views on the current state of you know the the UFC but more importantly you know their treatment of their fighters no, I mean I'm not I'm not blaming the UFC now. They, they, this this has been going on because there's new owners there now. So, but uh, the other ones they they sold it for four billion dollars. Um, look how many people uh, uh, before that did not get paid, and they were saying that they weren't making enough money to pay them, but yet they turned around and sold it for four billion dollars. That to me is is where the where the crime came in, way before now. Um, the, so many guys didn't make the money they needed to, and so many of them are on welfare and they can't pay their own bills. And this just shouldn't happen. It, it breaks my heart that you got a person that sits there that never stepped in the ring and fought, um, that gets um, $375 million or whatever it was, um, telling p- other, other fighters that they couldn't pay them because there, there was no money. But yet they walked away with $375 million. Uh, just because you know, um, didn't invest one dollar. Um, just be, it's a sick thing to me that the guys that went in and put the word in and put the put their blood and tears and sweat in that ring um, didn't get the right amount of percentage that they should have gotten because their lives would have been changed. They wouldn't be where they're at right now. To me, that's the crime. And and, and you personally, like when you were when you came back for say your second stint in the UFC and you're fighting Tito and stuff like that, did you ever feel at the time you were being undervalued or do you think you got looked after? You were just maybe a bit more pissed off at other people who weren't getting looked after, who deserved to get looked after. I was definitely angry about the people that weren't. Um, obviously I knew that I wasn't getting what I wanted because I've had my fights with them too. Um, but you know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go into that because I, I accepted what I accepted. Um, but even though I, I didn't know some of the numbers, then I was definitely lied to. Um, but here's the thing: is that it constantly is. It keeps happening. It's almost like um, nobody, and including the media, nobody wanted to go and say, "Listen, you guys are robbing these guys. You're not paying them." Uh, because they were afraid they'd be kept out and be able to report on the fights or that they wouldn't get the news that they needed or any of this other stuff, whatever the, the, the threats were. Um, and it's, it's wrong, man. Everything about that whole thing with the way the fighters were getting paid and how people who had opportunities to expose them didn't. Um, it's just so wrong. Because these guys went in there and they're the ones that hit and bashed on and, and out there in the ring uh, fighting and being told that hey, this is what we can pay, you can't pay you anymore, which is, was a lie. They, they had plenty of money. But do, you, but do you not think it's nearly, like an example of this would nearly be like someone like Mark Hunt in the heavyweight division. So, you know, he's fought two or three guys who've all been tested positive for performance and some, you know, drugs after. And he's tried to take the UFC to it and he's tried to voice his concerns about fighter welfare and start up these unions, fighter unions. And, you know, the UFC have just, they've given him, they haven't butted an inch. Do you, not, do you think it's ever possible for maybe a fighters group 
to start up and you know get more pay or do you just think they're going to continue to be exploited no i think unless there is some sort of um law that comes in that it stops this kind of of slavery um or extortion however you want to put it um because these guys are really don't have a position to fight back um because if not they don't get used so um however whatever you want to use that uh, it is what they're doing they're using it against them to be able to make them have to take what they give them because there's nowhere else to go and to me that's wrong you should be paying people according to what they're bringing in according to what their status is on the flight card on the pay-per-view card if that money's coming in they're not coming in to see the promoter they're not coming in to see the ufc they're coming in to see the fighters and if those fighters are on the card, then those fighters should be getting paid a percentage of what's being brought in on the pay-per-view in the door. No exceptions. Percentages of that. And not 1% or 0.1% is what's really coming, coming out to after you look at it. It is ridiculous the amount of money being brought in to the UFC. I'm not talking about now, but then. And then what they were paying out to the fighters that were on the card. That's, that's, I mean, it's close to slavery. Well, I I, I can't not but agree with you, but I I think it's just one of those things that people like yourself can voice about it. As I said, some of the fighters currently today voice their concerns about it, whether it's sponsorship deals, whether it's welfare, whether it's not being paid or poor treatment. But I just think it's something you just have to accept and be pissed off about but at the end of the day unless something dramatically changes it's probably going to continue which is yeah which is unfortunate. It's, it's a shame it's a shame unless somebody like yeah. conor mcgregor or 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 mayweather get together and 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 they form their own organization and say you know what well, well, let's show these these promoters and these other people you know how how fighters are supposed to be paid and and start yeah. paying out percentages on the fight card so that they understand and know that and, and, and educate the fans to, to how bad they were not paying the fighters, being able to educate the fans on how much money was actually coming in and that they weren't paying them. Yeah, no, I agree. And to kind of move on from the, you know, the UFC, you, your time came to an end there and tried out some different organizations and you ended up, your last few fights ended up being with Bellator. Some people speak positively of, you know, the final days of your career. Some people have kind of mixed reviews on it or mixed words to say about it. I, I, I personally think you've done a hell of a lot for mixed martial arts. You've also done a good bit for the WWF, WWE community well. And as you said, with the Hall of Fame inductee as well, that just showcases how important you were to mixed martial arts and especially the UFC. But what would you say to some of the people who would look at you and say, he fought on too long, he fought past his prime. Do you just say, listen, I love the sport, I've given my all to the sport, and they need to kind of just shut up and accept us? Or is there a part of you that kind of thinks, maybe I shouldn't have done those last one or two fights, maybe I should have known when to call time in my career? You know, what's oh, your view no. on the final years? No, I, listen, I think people, uh, they have their opinion. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, you know, people can have an opinion, 
but what they have to understand is this. I have never in my entire life quit on anything. I have always done everything I could to make sure that I, I succeeded in everything. And I, it's not like going up and turning a light switch on and off. It, it doesn't work like that. So since I have always been a person that never quit, I've always been a person that's constantly fought on, um, in life included, never laid down or gave up, constantly kept getting up and answering the bell because I always knew that if you keep getting up and you keep going, good things happen. It doesn't just turn off. Like you don't just go one day, go, okay, I guess it's over because I wasn't built that way. My DNA, I'm not that way. I constantly kept getting up, answering the bell because I knew good things would happen. And that's how I became a world champion. That's how I became successful in the world that we live today is because I constantly kept getting up and never giving in. And so all of a sudden when that time comes that you're supposed to quit, you don't know how to. And then people want to say things about, well, I fought on too long. You should have stopped fighting. How am I supposed to know that? How is me personally supposed to know that? I have to keep going until I can't go anymore. Then I know. Then I know it's, it's over. It's done. I didn't give up and I didn't quit. It's just I can't do it anymore. But how do I, how do, how do I know that unless I do it? And I realize it. Say, okay, it is coming. No one can do that for me. Only I can. Because if I quit and I still have something left, then I feel like I've, I've cheated myself. And I've cheated the fans and the people that love watching me fight. I've cheated them because I didn't give it my all. I didn't give everything I had. I have given everything I possibly could to get in the ring and fight and continue to keep fighting. I've tried everything to stay in the ring and keep fighting. I've changed my diet. I've done everything I could to stay in the ring and keep fighting. And, 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 it, and, and time, Father Time, just wouldn't let me do it. And so there was that point in time after I've been in the ring a few times and I kept trying to find ways to win and I couldn't. I realized then it was time. But now I know I'm at peace. It's not like I have to second guess myself and say, man, I could have done another one. I think I could have done another fight. I don't have those questions anymore. I know. Okay. Well, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting way to look at it because a lot of people would say, I felt my skill set was going i felt my power was going but you know in your mind it was i'm i'm not going to quit i'm going to keep going yeah. until mentally i was going to i was going to find a way no. to win i was going to find a way to yeah. win and and you know with like do you consider yourself retired fully now or do you ever see no. yourself so do you see yourself ever coming back to mixed martial arts or even maybe the wrestling circus possibly the wrestling and I, and are you looking to do? Would you do a lower type of show? Or are you just looking for WWE to maybe give you a short stink like they have with the likes of you know Kurt Angle or The Rock or Goldberg? Yeah, I would never go. I won't. I won't do a. Uh, I'm gonna if I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it at the top. Hmm. And, and do you think there's a possibility of that? Like, have you openly? try to contact these people or are you just kind of keeping yourself to yourself and you know if someone wants you it's the onus is on them to call you that's it the onus is on them okay and I, I suppose the last question I'd have for you is you know when you look back in your career to date 
um, whether it's mixed martial arts, whether it's in the UFC, whether it's Bellator, these other organizations, you know, do you see yourself as the finished article? Did you look at everything you accomplished and went, you know what, I couldn't have done anything better. I couldn't have done anything less with my heart on my sleeve or whatever. Or, you know, is there a bit of a bit of regret in there or is there ever a time where you think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have gone there. I should have fought him instead of him. Or, you know, do you look back with all the experience you had and think, I did I did everything I possibly could and I'm proud of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I can honestly say that I did everything that I wanted to do. Um, and that I had a clear conscience when I did it. There was, I didn't do things for money. I didn't do things for popularity. I did things because I wanted to. And I was never forced into a bad situation because the decisions I made, they were calculated and they were always thought out. That's why I was able to sell out at 53 years old, 52 years old. I picked my opponents very carefully on who I was fighting and how I was fighting them so that I had the most success in every time I stepped into the ring. Nice. Okay. I normally finish the the podcast with a few quick fire questions. So um go and just throw a few questions at you, yes or no questions or whatever, and you can do your best to answer them truthfully or to the best of your memory anyway. But uh right. question number one would be uh who's the best wrestler you ever worked with? Uh multiple. Um there was a lot of them. I have to work with a lot of them, but the one that was the most um, exciting to me and had a great rapport with was The Rock. Okay. And what was your highlight, your best moment in the UFC apart from winning the championship? Uh, being inducted in the Hall of Fame. And what would your, whether it's WWF, mixed martial arts, or anything else, what is the biggest regret of your career to date? Oh, the biggest regret. I don't have any uh, other than I wish I was younger. <laughs> but, but, but that, I, I don't have any. I really don't have regrets. Okay. What is your favorite film? Ooh, um, my favorite film. Ah, oh, man. Is the Godfather. Nice. Traditional. Yeah. <laughs> and and I I'd say just second last question, if you could fight anyone on the UFC roster right now, who would it be and who do you think would come out on top? Oh. Uh well, I can't say that he's he's even in the UFC, but it's it's somebody that's still present and still out there, but I would like to've been able to fight uh, Brock Lesnar and uh, yeah. would love to be able to have all of them but the one thing that I that I've always thought of and that I've always wished that I could uh, have had a shot at was being able to fight Tito Ortiz in my prime that's something yeah. that always I always wished I was just a little bit younger so I could have at least had a better fight <laughs> Mm, yeah, no, agreed. It would have been uh, some matchup to see you, as you said, in your prime against him, and it would have been a an interesting uh, yes. a, a battle of war uh, words as well. And um, last but not least, uh, would be sum yourself up in three words: um, kind, uh, thoughtful, 
and vicious. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to sum it all up. But no, that 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 concludes the podcast, Ken. And I just want to thank you uh, for coming on and you know sharing your insights to many different aspects of uh, the sporting world that you've experienced throughout your life and you know i wish you all the best and as i previously said with the podcast and um, that'll be linked below for all the listeners as well i suggest you check it out as you can hear uh, about ken's uh, life stories and his opinions on other matters in much more detail ken i just want to thank you a lot i really enjoyed interviewing you and uh, i wish you all the best with your future endeavors well hey, i thank you very much i appreciate it if you guys want to check us out on our podcast, it's dangerouspodcast.com. Check it out, man. Thank you, bro. Appreciate it. Okay, Ken. Take care. Uh.